Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, much of the talk in Australia this evening is about the Bruce Lerman rape trial in Canberra being aborted, which is fair enough. This whole saga has made a mockery of our justice system. Australian taxpayers spend an absolute fortune on the courts and armies of public prosecutors because we understand that justice isn't cheap. It was bad enough that former Prime Minister Scott Morrison used Parliament to imply the defendant was guilty and for various other media darlings to, impose, to also publicly pass a pre-trial judgment on the case. But for it now to be aborted because a juror was able to access material outside the evidence tendered to the court, and for the accuser, Brittany Higgins, to make subjective comments about it all after the trial was aborted, is not only an injustice to the two people involved, Higgins and the defendant, Bruce Lerman, but an insult to all the hardworking Australians who funded this operation and rightly expected it to work properly. God help any of us who wind up in a high profile criminal trial now. But let's not forget there are even more urgent issues around at the moment, not least of which is the ever increasing threat of nuclear war and the decline of Western civilization. These are heavy issues, so for a bit of light relief, let's start by looking at it all through the rose-coloured glasses of our former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd. In a piece in The Economist published yesterday, Rudd blew so much smoke up the behind of Chinese President Xi Jinping that she could have been chuffing out smoke rings. Quote, under Mr Xi, politics continues to move to the Lenin Leninist left the economy to the Marxist left, and Chinese foreign security policy to a much more assertive nationalist right. Sounds kind of innocuous, right? It would help if Rudd was a bit more specific. By Leninist left, he means a ruthless, murderous dictatorship. By Marxist left, he means economic devastation that will enslave and kill millions. And by assertive right, he means China will form a convenient anti-Western alliance with Russia, which is now threatening to start a nuclear war in Europe. Rudd went on, quote, These are profound changes from the relatively recent past. In large part, they are the product of a formidable politician whose audacity at home may also, also be a precursor to an even greater boldness abroad. Formidable politician? Boldness abroad? This is Rudd's way of saying she is poised to invade Taiwan, which would provoke a trans-Pacific war with the United States, which in turn would almost certainly involve Australia. This blithe and euphemistic prediction is from a man who once was the Prime Minister of Australia. Talk about elitist. But at least we've dodged a bullet with Rudd not becoming our ambassador to the United States. It's conventional that a new diplomatic post is leaked to the media beforehand to prepare the ground for the official announcement. 
And so it was that the nine newspapers reported on Sunday that calls were growing within Labor for Rudd to get the Washington gig, having got the backing of former Foreign Minister Bob Carr. Carr was paraphrased saying that no other contender could exert as much influence in Washington as Kevin Rudd. Well, either Rudd didn't want it or something happened behind the scenes because today Rudd said he was happy being the president of the Asia Society think tank in New York and didn't want the posting. Well, that's lucky for us. At a time of declining Western hegemony, Australia needs a voice in Washington that is assertively on the side of liberty, not a dove who uses euphemisms to excuse a ruthless communist dictatorship. China's only main ally, Russia, is now reportedly edging closer to busting out a nuclear weapon in Europe. The Times reports, quote, President Vladimir Putin has used a video link to observe Russian nuclear drills in the remote Kamkatka region that simulated a massive strike against his enemies, unquote. Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu was quoted saying the war in Ukraine was heading towards a, quote, uncontrolled escalation. Australia is increasing its involvement in that conflict too. Today it was announced that we will send another 30 Bushmaster personnel carriers to add to the 60 already sent, and we will send 70 senior military personnel to train Ukrainian fighters. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said, quote, we will continue to stand up for freedom and democracy. This is not just about Ukraine's sovereignty. The brave people of Ukraine are defending international law, rules and norms, unquote. Well, the brave people of Hong Kong were also doing that not long ago, and the brave people of Myanmar are doing it right now. But they don't rate any help from our government because... I presume they're not led by a former actor and stand-up comedian like Vladimir Zelensky. These are extremely volatile times that will require strength, diplomacy, and most of all, a clear idea about what sort of civilization the West represents and is prepared to defend. We've got to hope that Albanese and Foreign Minister Penny Wong are up to the job. My next guest is Stephen Wilson, an adjunct professor of engineering at the University of Queensland, who has mapped out the path for nuclear energy in Australia. The resistance to nuclear is baffling given that it ticks all three boxes of the energy sector. It's cheap, reliable, and it's clean. Hopefully, Professor Wilson can explain even more persuasively the case for adopting nuclear energy in Australia. Professor Wilson, welcome. Thanks, Fred. It's great to be here. Stephen, you've written a report titled, very prosaically, What Would Be Required for Nuclear Energy Plants to be Operating in Australia from the 1930s? Well, firstly, what sort of nuclear plants, plants are, you to, are you basing your thesis on and how much do these plants cost? From, uh, indeed, from the 2030s, Fred. 
But uh, yeah, this is the report you're. <laughs> oh, sorry, the twenty thirties. Oh my goodness, I'm in the wrong the wrong century. Yeah, go on. This is the report you're referring to. Yes. Um, which was published by the University of Queensland. Yeah. Yeah. So we were asked this question by our study sponsor: What would be required? What would we need to do? Um, you're probably aware, Fred, that there's uh, legal bans on nuclear energy in Australia. And, uh, but our study sponsor was asking us, challenging us to cast our mind forward to a time when the bans had been removed. And uh, the, the question is, you know, what would we need to do to actually have real plants operating in this country, you know, about a decade from now? And so that, that's what we laid out in this report. It's actually a big job. Um, there's a, a lot of work to do. Uh, and we set that all out. Uh, and you've asked how much would they cost? So we've we've actually provided some cost estimates in here um, for one particular example of uh, of plant. Uh, one what, what we chose rather than just dealing in the abstract, we decided to take a concrete example of a specific design that is uh, that's received its license and it would be available in that time frame to build. Uh, and we made estimates of of what that would cost. Uh, and you know there'd be a large capital investment involved in the billions of dollars. Um, but the interesting thing is that the delivered energy from such a plant would actually be uh, quite affordable um, and would have a very positive uh, impact on the total system costs. So are there private, I mean, I know there's a lot of companies absolutely queuing up to get their, to pocket the subsidies on offer for renewables at the moment. Are there many private companies queuing up to to build build nuclear well this is the issue in australia fred with the the bans um that are currently on the statute books at the federal level and uh, in a number of the states uh, victoria new south wales queensland uh, all have bans on the statute books against building nuclear power plants so one of the challenges and, and we address that in this study uh, is it's very hard to walk into a boardroom and ask for even a small amount of funding to do, let's say, a pre-feasibility study or even a scoping study on um, early project preparation for nuclear because the board will say, well, this is illegal. How can we put any early investment capital uh, into this? And so that, there's a conversation that needs to happen in that arena. Yeah, sorry. I mean, I should have been more specific with the question. I'm just trying to gauge how much enthusiasm there is uh, in the corporate world, because in the long term, this is quite a yeah. potentially a profitable proposition. Is that right? Yeah. Are you talking about Australia specifically? Or yes, yes. In Australia. Like, yeah. Yeah. In Australia. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's right. If you can, once you've got a nuclear power plant and it's up and running, its actual cost of operation is very, very economic. Uh, and its lifetime of service is very long. So these things will run for 60 years, 80 years. So as a long run investment, they're very attractive. Um, but, but first we've got to get to the point of, of actually building a plant and, and getting it into service. But before we get to that point, there's a whole lot of preparation work that needs to be done. So to your question on, is there a lot of enthusiasm among the corporates publicly, they're all very quiet at the moment. But what I'm seeing signs of is that there's a dawning realisation in the corporate sector that we're not going to be able to decarbonise the electricity system in Australia without nuclear plants involved. 
Well, let's just let's get to decarbonisation in a minute because uh, let's talk about safety because that's the main that's one of the main reservations mm. about this. Now, I've heard I've read once that uh, when you take in the entire production process from mining through to the supply of electricity, nuclear is actually the safest form of energy generation. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So there's people have done that analysis. Um, and basically looked at accidents and, and fatalities um, relative to how much electricity has been generated by all the different types, you know, from coal to gas to oil to hydro, wind and solar, etc. And and nuclear, it's it's extremely safe. Um, it's 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 you know um, the safest or very close to the safest form of electricity generation that we have when you look at those statistics. Why does this feel, why, why does the attitude that nuclear is unsafe persist then? I think it's a legacy of the, the Cold War era in the 20th century um, and some of the fears that, you know, people of my generation grew up with, um, people who muddled up uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear power plants as if they were the same thing. Um, and the sort of... Um, the sort of media coverage combined with popular culture um, that was uh, associated with the, the, the few rare accidents. So, for example, Three Mile Island in the United States just so happened to occur um, very shortly after the release of that famous film, The China Syndrome. And so I think, yeah, I think, and I think the other problem is that the, the industry probably... Um, for many years was perhaps not as sophisticated as it could have been in communicating with the public. Um, so very, very sort of technically focused, but um, perhaps not communicating with the public about the true nature of the technology. Well, the Simpsons certainly got some mileage out of it, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of these uh, amusing memes that uh, people have absorbed and, uh, you know, we need to we need to get past the, the world of Hollywood and cartoons and actually focus on the, the facts and the reality. Well, you, you know, the, if you compare it, yeah, sorry, Fred. No, go, go on, go on, if you compare it. I was just going to say, if you compare the industry with the aviation industry, if we took the same attitude to commercial aviation that um, people have taken to nuclear energy, then we would have banned flying years ago. Good point, yeah. So the, well, there's... Cost-benefit analyses are pretty rare these days anyway. Anything that makes a headline is, uh, is going to look negative. So, but speaking of, but the switching off of nuclear in Europe has had a cat catastrophic effect and, and Europe is now has an increased reliance on Russian gas, which with this winter is going to lead to blackouts and possibly hundreds or thousands of deaths in the cold. The, I think the Australian government seems determined to take Australia down a similar road by focusing predominantly on renewables. Now, your report says, quote, trading off service quality for reduced emissions is possible, but that is not a choice that any other country is likely to make, and nor is it a choice that Australians would be expected to make, unquote. Now, Stephen, you're implying here that the government will force Australians to make that trade-off of service quality for reduced emissions, aren't you? No, not exactly. I think when, um, when it comes down to it, um, any government is going to do what they have to do to make sure that people have 
uninterrupted electricity supply. Um, you, you know, you can get into a really bad situation where you can't achieve that. But when it comes down to it, governments are going to try to make sure that people are not blacked out and not left without power supply. And you mentioned Europe. It, it actually, right in the centre of um, the problems that Europe's facing at the moment is Germany. And when, when we look at the German example, we see, you know, a green minister, an energy minister, instructing coal plants, old coal plants, to restart and to operate. We see, um, in one case, it's extraordinary wind turbines being taken down to access coal underneath them. And yeah, that, that was the thing that led. That was the thing that I think prompted Greta Thunberg to comment that we should not be closing existing nuclear power plants. Um, she hasn't yet got to the point of saying we need to build new ones, but she's saying we shouldn't be closing existing ones. So the Germans, of course, after Fukushima adopted a, a really crazy policy of um, early retirement of their nuclear fleet. And that's one of the mistakes they made. And, you know, the price for that is starting to come due now. But but uh, but I think in Australia, you know, if we had a government with a green energy minister and there was a threat of blackout, we would see, you know, emergency chaotic refurbishments and life extensions of coal plants. Well, but Stephen, you're a bit you're you're very knowledgeable on the existing network. Aren't we heading down that road already? Yes, we are. Yeah, we we're we are removing. Um, the, the foundations of reliability from the generation system before we've got something that can fully replace what those assets provide. So how soon before this becomes a crisis for ordinary punters? Oh, it's hard to predict exactly when the crisis will hit. Uh, but the thing that has surprised me, I've been talking about this for probably five or six years now. Um, and the thing that has surprised me is that the, the kind of things that I expected to see have been happening earlier than I expected. And, uh, and, and yeah. These are blackouts, you mean? No, I mean symptoms that there are problems coming. Of course, we've, we, have seen, we have seen one statewide blackout uh, back in 2016. But, I mean, for example, when um, Liddell, the Liddell Power Station in New South Wales, which is scheduled to close next year, was first... Um, when it was first discussed as coming for closure, you know, there was a, a sort of an unseemly dispute between the then CEO and the then, and the then Prime Minister about that, which is something that I had thought might happen around about now, but it actually, that actually happened um, quite a few years ago now. So as the pressure comes on, I think we'll see more of these, these kind of problems. Has anyone in Canberra read your report and invited you in for a meeting? Well, um, I am aware that all of the senior politicians in Canberra, uh, in both parties, were provided with an advanced um, draft copy of the report and they were subsequently all provided with the, the uh, completed, um, the final report. Um, I presented the draft report in June of last year in Parliament House. Uh, I have had private conversations with various members of Parliament. Uh, so there is um, there is definitely awareness. We, you know, we we've been very open with uh, our elected representatives of the study sponsor, and others have been very open with them to what make was, sure that there's no Stephen, surprises. Stephen, what was the what, what was the uh, response like? What sort of you know reception did you get? Was it positive? Uh, 
the the reception that we had in the Friends of Nuclear Industries group, which is who we presented the who I presented the report to, and when we had a two hour session, you know, and an, an in depth hour presentation, and then an hour of Q and A. Uh, so the reception was interested and warm. There were people from almost all the parties um, present in the room, and 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 many staffers and and uh, people like that. So yeah, there's there's definitely awareness. Um, and, uh, and I expect that awareness will grow and the, the level of engagement will increase. Did you get any sense of when these bans against nuclear energy might be lifted? Uh, no, there's no, no one's put a date on that yet. Um, so that's, that's something that, you know, you and other members uh, the media might like to take up with the relevant people. Yeah, <laughs> we'll keep trying here. I'll just give you one more quote from that report, which I found uh, quite positive. It says, quote, deployment of a 21st century fleet of nuclear plants up to about 25 gigawatts would form the backbone of a robust, affordable, decarbonised grid, unquote. Now, this is technology yep. that exists. It could be powering Australia as soon as we can build it. Why, why is there no urgency for this, Stephen? Well, I think people are just starting to realise that um, our major finding from this study, which is we can do this. If we put our minds to it, we can do this. So I have to admit, uh, slightly embarrassed, that at the start of this work, I, I myself doubted that. I thought, you know, maybe this is too hard for Australia. Maybe this is too complicated. Maybe it's too high tech. Um, but as a result of the work and the engagement with industry experts uh, that, that we did um, with the research students, you know, what, that's what we found. We can do this if we put our mind to it. But it's not simply a matter of repealing the ban and then these plants will start just popping up like uh, mushrooms by magic. There's a lot of preparatory work that needs to be done uh, and it needs to have broad public support behind it and it needs to have strong support among the political class as well. Well, we'll keep pushing for that here at ADH TV. Stephen, you are clearly one of the most informed and level-headed experts in this field. We'll have to get you back very soon to discuss it some more, but thanks today for your time. Thanks, Fred, really appreciate it. That's University of Queensland Adjunct Professor of Engineering, Stephen Wilson. Well, one of the original hip new terms of the nascent computer industry in the early 1980s was the phrase killer app, which described a useful function built into a computer that couldn't be found in any other hardware. Invent the right app, like a computer spreadsheet for example, and you could build an entire global corporate empire out of it. As the industry, industry grew, computers became like an extension of people themselves, and inevitably, so did the idea of a killer app. Business executive Tim Sanders created a department called the Value Lab at Yahoo in 1999, back when Yahoo itself was still looking for the next killer app. It didn't find it, but Sanders did. He wrote a book called Love is the Killer App, which was published in 2002 and became an international bestseller. In it, Sanders laid much of the groundwork for the wokeness that has become so nauseatingly common in corporations today.
He said one of the secrets to corporate success was to tell colleagues how valued they were and how secure they should feel. Quote, those of us who love as a point of differentiation in business will separate ourselves from our competitors. Well, they did, but not for long because now corporate love is everywhere. Here is the latest version of it from Microsoft, where the idea of the killer app as a piece of computer hardware, at least, was born more than 40 years ago. This is Microsoft's own pride flag. The company says, quote, it represents 40 different individual LGBTQIA communities with one powerful graphic that reflects a message of unity, solidarity, and intersectionality, unquote. 40 groups. Who knew there were, th there were that many ways to define your sexuality? Sanders and his generation of corporate leaders probably didn't realize it, but by, by creating a loving corporate environment, they were simply offering an alternative to religion and patriotism, both of which were in precipitous decline and still are. What they were certainly aware of though, what they were certainly aware of though, is that once people felt they belonged, they would happily work harder for less pay. Corporations are now bigger than churches. Hell, some of them are even bigger than any nation. But one thing hasn't changed. Killer apps are still about making obscene amounts of money. Now let's finish the week as usual with a chat with Nick Cater, the host of Nick Cater's Battleground every Friday evening right here on ADH TV and the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre. There's plenty to discuss, so let's get right into it. Nick, welcome. Thanks, Fred. First, Nick, we get you from Menzies House in Canberra. Tell me about Menzies House. Lovely building named after the great R.G. Menzies, Robert Gordon Menzies, and opened by him, I think, in 64. Um, and this beautiful uh, foyer with, uh, you probably see Menzies himself behind me in the Australian flag, and there's, a, there's a, some special memor Menzies memorabilia here. So I always get a buzz out of coming in this building and seeing the great man himself and being inspired about what a good Liberal government can do. Oh, yes, those were the days. Uh, in fact, there's a room in there, if I'm not mistaken, that is virtually untouched since Menzies himself occupied it. Is that right? Indeed, Menzies' office, uh, the table is the same, the ashtray is the same. It's even got his hat on a coat peg there. It's not open to the public, but uh, we do show visitors around on occasions. It's a really special place. It's a physical connection with the man. And, and as you know, I'm a huge fan of you him are, and, you uh, are. and the philosophy and the, the party he created. And uh, I just hope that sometimes we'd listen a little bit more to, uh, to his wisdom. Yes, yes. It's like the forgotten people are forgotten again these days. Anyway, you're in Canberra. Let's talk about the budget. Uh, Treasurer Jim Chalmers' first budget. The response in the media has been mixed. But what is the response that you've found in the corridors of Parliament House? Look, again, mixed. I think people couldn't make out exactly what that budget was supposed to be about. And because uh, the thing is, you've, you've got to do two things when you come to making policy. One, you've got to identify the problem. And strangely enough, governments often don't do that before ploughing in. So Jim Chalmers identified the problem. The economy's in a lot of trouble and we're spending habitually more than the government receives. Uh, and, and that's your problem. And uh, 
he identified that very well, I thought. So yeah, it's like the problem. What he didn't do is give us any solutions. <laughs> it's like the problem is that we're not in enough debt. Well, that's right. That's right. So he's going to earn more. I mean, it is a thing. It is a you want to, It's a classic tax and spend budget, isn't it? They are going to tax us. $1.4 trillion over, over the next four years. That's more than any government has ever taken out of its citizens before. And uh, they're going to spend it all and then some. They're then going to have to borrow some more. So national debt's going to increase by another $200 billion by, in four years' time. You know, what is it about governments? Like, can't they see the problem? They're, they're, they're spending beyond our means. And uh, there's only one way to fix that, and that's... Uh, Remember we newspapers, we used to talk about the Razor Gang. They don't talk about those anymore, but that's exactly no, what they need, no. the Razor Gang. Well, one of the, the, one of the tiny details, relatively tiny details of the budget that has actually made some international headlines is the $77 million the government has put aside for uh, compensation for adverse reaction to the vaccines. That's pretty alarming, isn't it? Finally, the government is admitting that something's wrong here. Well, I guess they, they should be making sensible provision for risks. And you'd think on all the evidence that's coming to light, there is a big risk here. I mean, the government endorsed the vaccine. It, um, in some cases, people were, were basically made to have it on, on the pain of losing their jobs or not being able to travel to see loved ones overseas. So, yeah, I mean, if, 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 if there was uh, uh, any substantial um, case brought against the government for this, it would cost them a lot of money. Uh, but I would say it's just provisioning at this stage. I mean, there's still a lot of hurdles to get over before anybody can make a claim on that money. But I dare say there are lawyers out there as we speak eyeing this one up. Oh, I bet there are. Yeah, a lot of the 77 million might wind up in their pockets. But let's talk about the response to the budget uh, from the punters. You've got some access, exclusive access to some Compass polling. Let's go through them one at a time. How positive was the response to the budget in this uh, survey? It, it was very poor, uh, and, and that's comparing it to the previous two budgets, Josh Frydenberg's budget earlier this year and his last year. Uh, fewer people, I'm sorry, I'm standing here without the numbers, Fred, but you might, you might be able to help me if you can get them on the screen, but the fewer people thought this budget was going to be good for them and their families, and more people thought it was going to be bad than during Josh Frydenberg's two budgets. And, you know, that was a government, of course, that was on its way out. So it's not a great reception. Uh, the interesting one that I thought we, we, where you did get a very strong reaction for people is on energy prices, because it came out in this budget that energy prices are going to go up 56%, which, uh, whether Anthony Albanese admits or not, is, is the end of his promise to bring electricity bills down by $275. So uh, we asked people, should Anthony Albanese apologise for breaking his promise to uh, bring down energy prices? And overwhelmingly, 78% came back and said yes. That was even a, a slight majority of Labour voters were saying yes. So I think people, this has hit people hard, much harder, I think, than the government might appreciate because of what it is. It's energy prices, right? You know, we've, we've been promised relief and instead, you know, they're going up 56%. And of course, then that flows on to inflation. It puts up electricity, adds to the price of almost everything we do. So... Uh, it's, it's, it's a very bad result for him, and I think it's going to haunt him for the rest of his prime ministership. 
Well, it's a reflection of the times that we live in that uh, I'd say that the on the list of things Australian politicians need to apologise for, a broken election promise is probably pretty low. <laughs> I mean, we do live in a time of pretty poor governance, don't we, Nick? We do, and these promises don't just seem to mean very much. And, um, you know, why make... I think it's because people have such a low expectation and a declining trust in politicians uh, that this probably is something people had already factored in. You know, it sounded improbable at the time. But nevertheless, you know, I mean, they, they still are going on this promise that we're introducing more renewable energy into the system, more windmills, more solar panels, more batteries will bring the price of energy down. I mean, every energy economist in the world will tell you that's nuts, but that's, I guess, their fig leaf at the moment. Yeah, well, I've just been speaking to Stephen Wilson from the University of Queensland, who's the new expert on this topic. He's been talking about it for a couple of years, but he's only just released a new report that very prosaically and clearly outlines how we can start producing nuclear energy by 2030. Now, he says that the, the technology exists and, and, and the only things that, uh, that, uh, that, that are left to, the only obstacles left to clear are one, the will to do so, and two, the legal permission to do so. I mean, he says, mm. he, he says it's difficult to get enthusiasm or support from the private sector because people in the private sector just say, well, what's the point of financing an inquiry into the feasibility of nuclear energy when it's against the law? I mean, I know that um, Matt Canavan, Queensland Senator Matt Canavan and Alex Antich and a few other senators have got the ball rolling in the Senate. But in your opinion, Nick, you spend a lot of time in Canberra. How long before we see a groundswell of political will to see nuclear energy made legal in Australia? Well, I think there is already a groundswell there, but the problem is that the Labor government, which is the one in power, is, is def, you know, vehemently opposed to nuclear. And you've heard Chris Bowen time and time again saying nuclear is the most expensive option, which of course is a highly questionable statement, but he says it. That, I, I don't think there's any chance that Labor will change its mind this term of government. So I think that the, the best hope is that the Liberal Party uh, is able to make the case at the next election that they will come in, uh, remove the ban on the legislation so that these small modular reactors, which are very different from the big old reactors, as you know, can be introduced. And if they do that in 2025, I think Stephen Wilson's right. He knows a lot about this, but you can, you know, theoretically you could get one in within three years. So we could be replacing the coal-fired power stations, say like Liddell or Erring, by putting a new bank of, of small modular reactors in, which are perfectly safe, uh, quiet, and 100% carbon emissions-free, if that's your thing. So all that is possible, but that, that's getting a lot of ducks in the row. I think the first thing, though, is to persuade the public of the case so that the government, you know, that the opposition can go to the polls next time and win an election on this issue. Well, Stephen Wilson has been, he's been to Canberra a few times and he says that when energy becomes uh, too expensive and, you know, blackouts, blackouts start happening, then the political will will probably follow then. I mean, he might have more faith in the 
for example, the Labor Party than you and I do. But uh, I mean, what are you saying that it would be impossible for Labor to change its mind on this topic, even if even if there were widespread blackouts and and renewables were clearly not the answer? It's possible, but because the more they dig their heels in on this, the harder it's going to be for them to be. But obviously, they're going to have to look at something. I mean, Chris Bowen's plan, I think we've talked about this before, 22,000 solar panels he has to have installed every day for the next eight years, plus 40 wind turbines the size of the Sydney Harbour Bridge or taller every month for the next eight years in order to have a hope of reading his 43% target. And even then, I don't think he's going to do it. So he's going to have to look around for a plan B. I mean, these targets are now set in stone. They're legislated. Besides which, I think, you know, polling shows that most people in this country, you know, do think we should try and reduce our emissions. And so I don't think they're going to want to go back to coal necessarily. But that isn't even the best idea because small nuclear, when it's up and running, can get in, be put in quite quickly. And, of course, is 100% reliable 24 hours a day and can back up you know, what renewables we have. It's, it, I think increasingly it seems like the solution. I think there's still work to be done on costs. But in Canada, I saw a picture the other day of one already being built in Canada at an existing coal-fired power station, which seems to be the most sensible place to start. So uh, I, I, I'm confident that as people start to see the, the, the big problem with these renewables, you know, the people live near solar farms or, or solar farms that are being built will know the size of these and the the damage that they cause to the local environment. People start to realise that this is not the way to clean up the planet, you know, exactly. by, make, by putting these things in, which we exactly. actually don't know how to dispose of or anything. That's yeah, not well, the these, these plants clean the planet. Th these plants have a lifetime of, you know, 60 to 80 years. I mean, you, you mentioned mm. the number of solar panels he needs to stick on the, you know, on the on the, the otherwise green hills of, of uh, surrounding towns and cities in Australia. But the, the windmills he wants to stick in the ocean, I mean, to get 13 gigawatts in Gippsland, which is the proposal off Victoria, he's going to need 900 square kilometres of ocean. I mean, that, that's, just, that's just ridiculous. And that's only 13 gigawatts. One modular nuclear power plant produces 25 and it's the size of a house. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah they're, they're, very, they're very land and sea hungry. That's the thing. They take up an enormous amount of area. So, and plus, of course, the other point about this, rarely raised, but it comes up in an interview I do uh, for B Battleground this week, which we might talk about with Mark Mills, but he talks about the amount of minerals we're going to require for this. You know, batteries, the solar panels, the windmills, they t it, it needs a whole lot of mining up minerals from the ground to produce this. And because the whole world, of course, is, is going into fast gear on this now because of this uh, Paris 2030 commitment, those minerals are just becoming scarcer and scarcer. The price of batteries is going up. So it's, it's, it's physically impossible almost to see how we can actually get all the gear we, we apparently need, especially as so much of it comes from China, in the time frame available. There has to be a plan B and uh, you know, an, intent, an energy dense uh, uh, project, project like the uh, small modular reactors is much more sensible way to go and um, much less um, hurtful to the environment. So that's Mark Mills you're talking about from the Manhattan Institute. And viewers, if you're interested yeah. in hearing more about that, tune in to Nick's show tomorrow night at 8, eight o'clock on ADH TV. Now, Nick, quickly before you go, just a quick one about Kevin Rudd. All that talk about uh, him being the ambassador uh, to the United States. 
He's come out today saying he's not interested in the job, which suggests to me that someone whispered in his ear and said, it's not yours anyway, mate. What's your take on it? Do you think Australia dodged a bullet? I think we certainly did. I want, do we have an ambassador in Belarus? No. Do we friends? That, that struck me as being the ideal yeah. place to send, to send Kevin. Uh, surely surely no, there's I some mean, sort the man's, of... Yeah, go on. He's so opinionated and, and, and thinks so much of... I don't think we want that sort of person as an ambassador to you. I mean, what would the Americans make of him? No, you know, exactly. Uh, well, I don't think he'd be able to represent all of Australia anyway. Anyway, he's too divisive. I mean, you want someone who... At least has the potential to uh, sort of gaining the affections of all of Australians, but too many people, especially yeah. people in the Labor Party, already hate him. So you know, he can stick yeah. to his. Yeah, I mean, little... we've had great, we've had great, great service out of Kim Beasley and and, and then Joe Hockey, both affable, you know, health fellow people are able to get along. I mean, you have to be a diplomat, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> the one thing Kevin yeah. Rudd wasn't yeah. was diplomatic. Kind of, kind of high on the uh, high on the job description. Nick Cater, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Nick Cater, the host of Nick Cater's Battleground here on ADH TV every Friday at eight o'clock. And before I go, you've got to admire Kanye West's ability to alienate almost all his former friends, business partners, and even his wife, because he instead wanted to pursue an uncomfortable truth. In an interview with Tucker Carlson recently, he talked about the falsehood of black politics, his faith in God, his friendship with Donald Trump, and his unbiased love of all humanity. These admirable qualities earned him mostly scorn from his former friends on the left. His recent anti-Semitic outburst on Twitter has now been pounced on as the final nail in the coffin. The Times of London reports, quote, West has been dropped by CAA, his talent agency, restricted from Instagram and Twitter, had a complete documentary about him shelved, and streams of his music are falling amid calls for a boycott. This week, the German company Adidas said it would take a short-term hit of £217 million to its income by ending its partnership with West. The quote went on, as a result, his fortune tumbled from $2 billion in the Forbes rich list this year to a mere $400 million, unquote. But even if he lost it all, his anti-Semitism notwithstanding, he'd still have the priceless consolation that he doesn't roll with the crowd in pursuit of the truth. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for your company this week. Don't forget to watch Nick Cater's Battleground tomorrow night at 8 o'clock, followed by Save the Nation with Professor David Flint. Have a great weekend and I'll see you after Alan Jones on Monday night at nine. Good night.